Go get them, boys. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The First World War had a profound impact on the Lone Star State, from the men and women who served to its role as a training ground for soldiers and aviators. Texas played a significant part in the American war effort. However, what is often forgotten about World War I is the negative effect on Texas's German population that was felt for years afterwards. Today we look at Texas in the Great War. But first, who's your favorite Texas military leader? Well, I'm going to go the easy route and say it would be uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz, uh, who was a uh, very well-known admiral in the Second World War who uh, hailed from Texas and uh, was commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet. Ahoy, ahoy! Well, for my money, pound for pound, best Texas military leader has to be the one, the only, Sam Houston. Full-size Sam Houston or giant statue Sam Houston? Hmm, I'm going to say giant statue Sam Houston, but only if he fights giant Lincoln. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My favorite is, even though he's a raging egomaniac and a crazy guy, Claire Chenault, who was born in Texas, he was the commander of the Flying Tigers in China during the Second World War. And I'll have you know that uh, a great uncle of mine was a mechanic for Chenault over there. In China. As as part of the Tigers. Wow, awesome. So Texas. We'll save that for a future episode. On August 4th, 1914, more than a month after the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the great powers of Europe threw themselves into the most destructive war the world had seen up to that point. While Texas and the rest of the United States were surprised and concerned by the outbreak of the war, it would be a full two and a half years before they found themselves in the conflict. Texas played an important part in both the entry of the United States into the Great War and in the country's overall war effort. The impacts of the war, positive and negative, on the society and people of Texas were profound. While the summer of 1914 found Texas and the rest of the country surprised by the sudden collapse of peace in Europe, it wasn't really terribly surprising or concerning. Uh, There were other issues closer to home that were more concerning, especially the continued revolution in Mexico. In fact, the assassination of Ferdinand back in June was a down-page item in most Texas newspapers, with the headlines focusing on the heavy fighting in Mexico between the Federalist forces of dictator Victoriano Huerta and revolutionaries under Alvaro Obregón, Venustiano Carranza, and Pancho Villa. Political instability and civil war in Mexico had always had a tendency to spill over the Rio Grande, or at least to elevate tensions along the border. Fighting in northern Mexico in 1911 had caused the government to activate troops, including the Army's 1st Aviation Unit, at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio until the border settled down. American naval forces had already intervened in Veracruz that April to protect American interests. An American naval squadron, including the brand-new battleship USS Texas, occupied Veracruz and patrolled the coast. Though Huerta was defeated in July, fighting continued through 1914 and into 1915, with Pancho Villa becoming major force in the northern part of Mexico, and the war did not end until 1920. In any case, the situation in Europe didn't have a sudden impact on or hold much concern for the people of Texas. The only immediate issue was the collapse of the cattle and cotton markets due to the war. In 1913, two-thirds of Texas' cotton crop went to markets in Europe. With the declaration of war, Germany and Austria were cut off from Texas exports, 
so the bumper yield of 1914 largely went to waste. England soon became a major importer of cotton, beef, and Texas' newest and most important resource, oil. England's reliance on importation of supplies to keep its population fed and its war effort on track drew the United States into the conflict sooner than it wanted. The sinking of the ocean liner Lusitania by German submarines in May 1915 was a shocking event for the entire United States. 128 Americans were on board the liner, and though it was actually carrying munitions in violation of naval law, Americans were still outraged at what they saw as the brutality of submarine warfare. The Texas Senate passed a resolution calling on the United States to sever diplomatic relations with Germany. This reaction caused Germany to scale back its submarine campaign, but in many ways the damage was already done to U.S.-German relations. Events in Mexico over the next two years caused even further harm to those relations. Germany had previously supplied arms and support to the Huerta government, and then they switched to courting pretty much all sides in the ongoing civil war between Obregón, Carranza, and Villa. An attempt by Carranza to frame Villa for stirring up a race war in Texas called the Plan de San Diego resulted in a serious conflict between Texas Rangers and the residents of the Rio Grande Valley. Villa's raids into New Mexico and Texas culminated in 1916 in a punitive expedition by the U.S. Army into Mexico to capture Villa. The expedition ultimately failed, but it saw a buildup of forces at Fort Sam Houston. The continued importance of military aviation in San Antonio and it provided a training ground for a number of officers who went on to greater fame, including Commander General Jack Pershing and a young cavalry officer named George S. Patton. The punitive expedition into Mexico also increased tensions between the U.S. government and that of Villa's enemy Carranza. As 1917 dawned, Germany sought to use this tension to their advantage. The Germans could no longer afford to restrict their submarines from sinking neutral ships going to Great Britain and planned to launch an unrestricted campaign in the spring of 1917. They knew this would bring the United States into the war with them, but they believed that the U.S. would need time to mobilize and train its forces before they could be sent to Europe. On January 16, 1917, German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman sent a coded telegraph to Mexico proposing an alliance if it declared war on the United States and invaded the Southwest to regain lands lost during the Texas Revolution and the Mexican-American War. Germany hoped that the U.S. would be distracted by a war with Mexico and combined with resumed and unrestricted submarine campaign. This would force Britain to surrender within a few months. Unfortunately for Germany, British intelligence had cracked the Germans' diplomatic codes and passed the Zimmerman Telegraph to the American government. On March 1st, the U.S. government released the news to the American public. The effect on public opinion was electric. White House confirms Teutonic conspiracy. Germany's world power lust is bared, declared the Houston Chronicle. The El Paso Times described the Germans as, quote, writhing in the slime of intrigue. The San Antonio Light reported that the government had good knowledge that there was a, quote, unusually large number of Germans, end quote, in northern Mexico, and predicted an invasion of Texas by a joint German-Mexican army, promising to, quote, fight to the death. In the end, there was no invasion, as Carranza wisely declined Germany's offer. But the damage was done. On April 2, 1917, America declared war on Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire. Texas played a major role in the conflict. 200,000 young men and nearly 500 women from the Lone Star State volunteered or were drafted into service during the war. The Texas National Guard was called up and formed the nucleus of two significant units in the U.S. Army. The 90th Division was made up of troops from the Texas and Oklahoma Guard. 
Its unit patch had the letters T and O, and they initially were known as Texas Oklahoma or Texas Own Division. They were among the first American units to see combat in Europe, and their nickname soon transformed into tough hombres. The 90th was an integrated division with white and Hispanic troops serving together, as well as African American troops and support units. The 36th Infantry Division was also formed from the troops from Texas and Oklahoma. The 90th saw combat in the St. Mihiel Offensive, and both units fought in the Meuse-Sargonne Offensive and suffered horrendous losses. Nearly 12,000 troops from both units were casualties, and in the end, nearly 5,000 Texans died while in the service, many of them from disease, including the Spanish flu pandemic. 10% of all U.S. combat deaths in the war were Texans, the highest proportion from any state. Four native Texans and one Texas resident were awarded the Medal of Honor for Heroism. And there were many other Texans who saw significant service in Europe. Robert Lee Howes of Overton was a significant commander, and future World War II generals Claire Chenault, Walton Walker, and Lucian Truscott all saw their earliest service during the Great War. Texas A&M University, the Agricultural and Military School of Texas, contributed 2,200 of its students to the military, and the entire class of 1917 volunteered to serve, a source of great pride for many years to the school. Go gig em, boys! Texas's contribution to the war effort was not just limited to troops on the ground. The state was a key supplier of beef, cotton, and especially oil. The timber, shipbuilding, and refining industries along the Gulf Coast also saw major expansion. The small town of Orange on the Sabine River produced some of the most unusual cargo ships of the war. Fourteen masted sailing ships built entirely of East Texas pine. These ships, seeming to hail from a bygone era, carried cargo all over the world for the Allies, and four were lost, including one to a U-boat attack. Hundreds of other ships of all kinds were built at shipyards in Orange, Beaumont, Houston, and Corpus Christi. How do you fit 14 masts on one giant ship? And there were 14 <laughs> ships that were four masts. Can, can you imagine the, the German U-boat commander that looked through his periscope and saw a mein masted Gott, sailing ship? There is a ship beyond belief on the horizon! <laughs> Sounds like a uh, final countdown situation there. And, and I want to say the Eliza in Galveston was also used during this period. Perhaps the most significant contribution to the war effort was the role that Texas played in training soldiers and aviators. Its mild climate and open territory made Texas an ideal location for training purposes. There were 32 military training camps located throughout the state, and hundreds of thousands of servicemen passed through Texas on their way to war. It was in aviation that Texas really played a critical role. Pilots, navigators, bombardiers, and ground crew were trained in Kelly and Brooks Fields in San Antonio, Hicks Fields in Fort Worth, Barron Field in Austin, Love Field in Dallas, Ellington Field in Houston, and Call Field in Wichita Falls. Kelly Field alone produced 1,500 pilots. Many famous aviators trained in Texas, including founding commander Benjamin Falloy, Townsend Dodd, Claire Chenault, and native Texas stunt flyer Ormer, the demon of the air, Locklear. Texas also made aviation history in a way when the battleship Texas, attached to the British Grand Fleet, launched the first plane ever from an American battleship. One of the most enduringly funny stories to come out of the First World War was the discovery that quote-unquote German sabotage of American aircraft at Dallas's Love Field training facility was actually being caused by free-ranging cattle who enjoyed eating the fabric wing coverings. The Kaiser Cows of Texas has a fun ring to it. Life at home in Texas was generally one of great excitement and patriotism. For the most part, Texans wholeheartedly supported the war. Some isolationist and hardcore populist elements did exist here and there, but most Texans pitched in. There were donation campaigns, and Texans willingly went along with official programs to increase food production and reduce consumption. 
Victory gardens sprang up everywhere, as did citizens' councils to support the war. The large numbers of soldiers coming into the state helped local economies considerably, and there was relatively little privation in Texas and the U.S. compared with the European combatants. Prospects for rural Hispanics were also improved as urban jobs in the defense industry became available to them as regular workers went off to war. There was, sadly, a darker side to the home front in Texas. Beginning in the 1840s, large numbers of Germans had migrated to the state. German communities were spread out over the Texas Hill Country, where the primary language was a distinct local dialect called Texas German. Businesses, schools, and churches in these communities were German and had largely resisted cultural assimilation. These communities had survived and thrived over the years, attracting further waves of German immigration. By 1914, the major communities were New Braunfels, Comal, and Fredericksburg, although there were other areas of settlement as far north as Gatesville near Waco and as far south as Victoria. Despite their German character, by the time the war began, the majority of the residents of these communities were not foreign-born, but were second- or even third-generation Texans. Still, many of these communities expressed initial support for their homeland and raised money and supplies for the German Red Cross. Remember, this was before the U.S. was involved in the war. As public opinion in Texas and America turned against Germany, suspicion of the German Texans began to rise, and the Zimmerman telegram caused public sentiment to turn against them. Soon the press began to rail against the German Texans and question their loyalty. Editorials advised that, quote, Citizens of German extraction must make it their personal duty to ensure that acts of disloyalty will not be permitted. The other reactions to German Texans ranged from the profound to the absurd. There was little outright violence against them, but it did occur. Most of the abuse would be pure and simple harassment. The German department at the University of Texas was shut down, and all of its professors were fired. The legislature passed loyalty laws that made speaking any language other than English in public illegal. This effectively banned German from being spoken in businesses and churches and from being taught in the public schools. German Texans were scrutinized for how many of them volunteered for service, how many bonds they were buying, and how much they were giving to the war effort. Throughout the U.S., German-named streets were renamed, such as King William Street in San Antonio, becoming Pershing Avenue. German food names were discouraged. Hamburgers became Liberty Sandwiches, Frankfurter's Liberty Dogs, and Sauerkraut Liberty Cabbage. More disturbing, though, was the case of Ella Behrens, a young army nurse whose parents were Germans. She was arrested at Fort Worth's Camp Bowie and was accused of intentionally spreading influenza to her patients. She was never tried, but she was dishonorably discharged, and it took her 30 years to finally clear her name. Another sad part of this story is that Germans in Texas did have genuine concerns and divided opinions about the war. While the majority of Germans in Texas were not recent immigrants, ties to the home country remained strong. Still, there were almost no outright statements or demonstrations in the German communities in support of the Kaiser, and plenty of German Texans served in the military. Comal County alone, where New Braunfels is located, contributed 500 young men. There were several Texan heroes of the war of, that were of German lineage, including Louis Jordan, a college football All-American who was the third American and first Texan officer killed in combat. Another German Texan, Lieutenant Commander Chester W. Nimitz from Fredericksburg, served in the Navy during the Great War and during World War II became Admiral and Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Theater. By the end of the war, the harassment disappeared as the rest of the state and country tried to, quote, return to normalcy. In many ways, the whole thing was forgotten by their non-German neighbors, but the German Texas remembered. The cohesion and isolation of their communities began to relax, and assimilation into the mainstream increased. 
the Texas-German dialect took the greatest hit. Public education remained English only, and children could only learn German at home. New waves of immigrants, noting the harassment of other German speakers during the war, tended not to pass it along to their children. Today, the dialect is only spoken by a few elderly Texans. Several Texas communities did retain their German character, especially Fredericksburg, due to their somewhat isolated location in the hill country. New Braunfels expanded, and more non-Germans moved into the area. Today, the Texas German cultural heritage is largely based around tourism, but there are areas where it remains strong. During the Second World War, the harassment and scrutiny of German Americans, including Texans, didn't really return the way it had during the First World War. This was largely due to a lack of identity that the German Texans had with the Nazi regime and the sad focus of popular distaste, however unjustified, on Japanese Americans. Still, German Texans stepped lightly during World War II and worked diligently to ensure that their loyalties would never be questioned again. I think we all know, in some sense, like the idea of the German Texan. I mean, it's, you know, you can't drive down I-35 and you see, you know, Der Smokehouse and you see like the, you know, Welcome to Schlitterbahn and yeah. all of the, uh, you know, the very German-themed touristy attractions you see in that area. Right. And, and I, there were Germans all over the United States. And during the First World War, they did suffer very similar persecutions. But I can't think of a, a, a concentrated community like Texas had, where it was a deliberate colony set up by elements of you know, German states sent people over to Texas to set up communities. Yeah. And, and so they were they were concentrated. They had their own dialect. They were unique. They were working to bring other Germans in even up past the First World War. Yeah. Um, my wife's great grandfather, or great great grandfather, he he did. That was one of the things that he did was he kind of he was in Gatesville and he would raise money among the community to bring people over from Germany. So the the persecution, like you, you see the stories of the liberty 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 sandwich and the liberty cabbage throughout in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and other states, but in Texas, the state government actively persecuted German citizens, Texas German citizens. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, passing a law to outlaw speaking anything but English right. in public. I could not imagine the same thing passing today. But and it, it has and a it cultural... Wasn't, well, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was selectively enforced. But the way the, the way the police, the, the research that I read, the police enforced it was if you spoke French, you were fine because you weren't, that was an ally. They right. didn't really mess with the, the Hispanic, the Mexican, uh, the Tejanos who spoke Spanish. It was just a way for them to actively persecute the Germans. But doesn't that set a precedent, I mean, today, to say that there's a persecute? You know, uh, we tend to be a very Anglophile, Anglocentric country Mm -hmm. when it comes to our language. And I think, you know, there's there's been, in modern times, there's been a a big effort to say, you know, hey, you should be, everyone should be speaking English. It's a patriotic thing to do. And I can say from my own personal experience that, you know, I have both, a, a large German and a large Polish heritage, and neither is spoken by my parents, or you know, it was it was tradition that just was not encouraged and passed down. Yeah, and I think we saw that. You know, we see that in this episode of at the time of these communities. I think it's very interesting is the German communities had German schools, and so the kids were there, and you you lived in a German community, you spoke German, you learned German in school, everything was taught in German. It was German in cl- church when you went to church, yeah, it was in it German. Was, it was, and so that enclave was broken up, and it, it really affected this culture a lot, but it also set a precedent for other cultures, I think, in, in the state. 
you know, when our friend, the friend of the show, James Abendroth, who's helped us write some episodes, uh, he did, he, he read this episode to kind of help me out here. And he had an interesting anecdote. He said that his great, great grandmother uh, was angry at her boys and her, at her grand, grandchildren or her, her children, her sons, because they didn't volunteer for the military, the Kaiser's military. Uh, <laughs> she, she refused to speak English and, uh, he only spoke English. He didn't, James didn't know that his grandfather spoke German. But he only spoke German to his mother, who refused to speak English. And but uh, yeah, she was angry that they wouldn't join the Kaiser's army. You know, so I mean, we're focusing here on this on this small community and this interesting footnote. Um, you know, from the cultural part of Texas, I think it's really interesting because for all of us, you know, Scott, I know his family and spends a lot of time in, in the hill country. You know, it's something that you know we have cultural and family ties to, and we're there to visit. There's Schlitter bonds all over, you know. There's Schlitter bonds all over the United States now, and it's you know uh, it's a German themed water park. Yeah, and it's just like oh well, that started because there was German communities in Texas, and that's what it's built on. But it you know just to see how popular it is and that that kind of fun iconography, but to know that you know it was considered wretched and and unacceptable and un-American and un-Texan for a time is is kind of hard to accept. Yeah, no, I was going to say we've we've been focusing on the, you know, the treatment of the German Texans, but you know, Texas had a pretty significant role in the the First World War overall. Heck yeah, we did. It did. And, and you know, all these uh training bases that were set up everywhere uh because of the wide open spaces and and the wide open spaces and the easy land to get to uh and there was good transportation in this day at the time. There's a lot of roads. So that was what, and the favorable weather, year, they could do year-round training because they didn't know how long they were going to be over there. Right. So they had to keep this machine going. Now, the, the thing was is that most of the Texas, most of the people who died in the war from Texas died in the United States. They died of Spanish flu because the war was over within a year from when we entered the war pretty much, about a year and a half. Um, but back to the Texas-German thing, I think the reason we're focusing a little bit on the Texas-German thing is because it's a unique community in Texas. It's a unique part of Texas, but it's something that's not well known. And as we are looking at the hundredth anniversary of the beginning of the war in Europe, uh, and the focus is going to be for, for the next couple of years on, you know, the trench warfare and, uh, the, the horrible events of, of, of in France and in the Eastern front and Russia, America didn't really come in to the war until 1917. So, Really, our centennial anniversary of the war is going to be in a couple of years. But as we could see from this, even from the first, the kind of the, there was some suspicion of the Texas Germans. That, that article where they talked about the invasion uh, yeah. that was coming. The invasion of the Mexican-German Mexican Mexican-Germans in 19... Well, in, but in, the deal with that is there was another part where, you know, in there it said that... Uh, it was actually kind of conciliatory towards the Texas Germans. It said Texas Germans are not going into Mexico and, or they're not talking about uh, joining the, this, this invasion. So it kind of excluded them from that suspicion. But then as time went by, that suspicion blew up. Let's take it back to the, to the beginning part of the episode where we talked about the Zimmerman telegram. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, we, Yes, we provided bases. There's this German thing. We talked that to death. But I find it really interesting that that the Kaiser had this idea of, well, we'll just fire up the Mexicans and they'll <laughs> yeah. they'll step in and give yeah. old, they'll give old Uncle Sam a what for? Yeah. But 
I mean, honestly, at this time, like, we were so established as a part of the United States. And uh-huh. Mexico, when we talked about the Texas Revolution, you know, we said you have to understand there's 50 years of Mexican Revolution that you have to sort of unwind to understand right. how Texas got here. And then you that, get, that continued. That yeah. continued <laughs> all the way for another right. 70 years. It, well, it continued. So how did they think that Mexico, with such political instability, with three, four factions fighting for yeah. control, yeah. were going to get it together enough to provide any kind of credible threat to occupy the United States. And the reason is, is that on paper, the United States Army only had about ten to 20,000 men. Yeah. You know, the, the, this was pre-military industrial Well, let complex. me say <laughs> that the value of the Texas fighting man cannot be overestimated. Well, and that's what happened with the plan to San Diego. We'll get into that in another episode, but basically the Army was there uh, when there was this this idea that there was going to be a race war, and uh, the Rangers went and basically killed a bunch of people, not just Mexican migrants and stuff, but and and bandits, but like just plain old Tejano people that were working and living in the valley. So it was a pretty ugly incident. But yeah, the Texas Rangers were the most fearsome force on the border at the time. But I think the idea, it is an interesting interesting thought, is that Texas is so integral to this bringing America into the war because of this telegram and because that that chain of events that began in 1836 and culminated in 1848 with the end of the Mexican War that brought the entire Southwest U.S. into the country, that was still a sore spot and still a point of contention that the, that the Kaisers could exploit or try to. Well, shout out to the to all the history history fantasy nerds out there. I mean, yeah. this sounds like a great Harry Turtledove book of like, <laughs> what if the what if the Zimmerman telegram had been intercepted and decoded? You know, well, or what if it had been true? What if uh, yeah, Carranza yeah. had he'd um, agreed to it? Yeah, taken the Kaiser up on his offer. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, and Carranza was not a not a was a smart dude, and he he did see there was problem. He didn't have the strength to invade Mexico. Um, I mean, I guess the... the, the invade. I, I mean, invade Texas, yeah. I guess the idea that the Germans tried to float to him was, why don't you get get together with Villa and Obregón and just go into... I think it would have been much smarter for yeah. them to say, invade like Arizona or New Mexico or California. Just stay the heck out of Texas. Well, well they, <laughs> they even tried to get the Japanese involved. Uh, you know, the, there was also a hint in the telegram to say, well, we could talk, you could talk to the Japanese who are currently at war with Germany about... By basically negotiating a settlement with Germany and then joining in this invasion of the United States. You know what? Well, I think we need to stop right now, break out the old typewriter, and start fire up a script. Let's get Tom Cruise online because I smell a historical blockbuster. <laughs> right. Yeah. So okay, so so the Zimmerman telegram happens. Mexico declines, and Mexico doesn't engage over the border. And but right. I, I do find it interesting that at that time, Texas could give you know. I don't know. Oh, you Texas mean 1914. Is, I'm talking 1914. It's interesting because, you know, again, we're we're always late getting into these global conflicts. World yeah. War, we'll see it again in World War II. But Texas could just give a hoot. I mean, they're like, what's happening? Yeah. There's international conflict 35 miles from my house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, why do I care what's happening on the other side of the ocean yeah, to they, those they guys? I think that maybe 2 million Mexicans were killed in this 10-year period during the Mexican Revolution. Like, it was bad. It was really bad. But yeah, the only thing they really cared about was, well, our market, you know, we've got all this cotton sitting here on the, on the docks and it's not getting bought by anybody in Europe. Well, it's an interesting twofold economic problem because when something like that happens, 
And anybody who knows anybody in agribusiness understands the fact that when a market collapses, that there becomes a surplus of the items. So it's not only there's less to sell, the price of what you have to sell because there's so much surplus, right. the price just drops to the bottom. Right. So it's a, it's like happens. it's an accelerator that happens. So it's like, oh, well, I have two million bales of cotton. There's only a million bales that are in demand because of the supply and demand mismatch. Now that cotton's almost worthless to you. Yeah. But once, once it was figured out within a few months that the war was going to last longer, the British bought everything. So... You know, that that, that that kind of helped the economy. But, yeah, I think, you know, the the, the First World War is, is, is not obviously as big a story in the United States as the Second World War is. I mean, that that was such an, an all-encompassing event that that really affected people in living memory as well. But it really affected everything and everyone. And if you go to Europe and go to England or go to France, I mean, I went to London in 2002 and I saw literally three exhibits on trench warfare in the same museum, like full life-size exhibits on trench warfare in the British, in the Imperial War Museum. So it, and then that not, that doesn't count the other things that I saw about the first world war. And this was at the time, 80 years later. So in a, but I think the more present issue and the more present effect is what happened to the German Texans, because it was such a thriving community and it still is, but it was so scarred by this event, similar to what happened with the civil war. But in, in the civil war, it bonded them together. The persecution of them as unionists, it bonded them together. Right. And in the world war one, it really kind of split things apart for the Germans. My wife's grandmother, she's from Gatesville. Her dad was from Germany. He came over in 1908 or something. He, he lived through this period. And during the second world war, you know, she said she didn't remember a lot of things, but she said that she remembered her dad said, don't talk German. Don't speak German when the second war, when the American got in the war in, in the second with the second world war with Germany, because he was concerned that his kids were going to be persecuted again. And that didn't happen because they, we persecuted the Japanese like crazy. So, which is sad, but that's what we did. <laughs> so we talked about the Germans in Texas. We've talked about, we covered, you know, the, the, cool spy tech and how we intercepted this telegram and how there's <laughs> well the british intercepted it for us yeah i like to think that the texans did it by proxy through the british <laughs> yeah. it was a special unit of texans special working with working the british, british sam right? houston yeah. from Spe- beyond special, the grave special unit of texas rangers embedded uh, with the sas well yeah, there, exist. i think it's cool that <laughs> i think it's really cool 10 percent of everyone that that like was killed in combat was killed in combat was from texas now granted Texas represents 10% of the landmass of North America, continental U.S., but... But at the time, it was far from the most populous state. Oh, certainly so. But, like, look at the patriotism. I mean, yeah. I'm not just going to keep heaping praises on the Aggies, but it's, it's really cool that, you know... I mean, it's a military college, essentially, right. but they all go to war. Like Yeah, you know. like the whole class is like, we'll sign up. Yep. Well, I think it's interesting also that this subject kind of touches on some of the things that we've talked about before in some of our longer episodes. We talked about the battleship Texas and such, and the important part that it played, although it wasn't in combat during the First World War, it did shoot at a submarine one time, which was pretty awesome. But uh, the the important part that it played during the First World War and that the war played on it, and then the San Antonio episode, which which is you know hits close to your home, you guys' home, because. You know, you have family members who served in those bases later, but that was really the start of the the San Antonio Aviation 
and Love Field. We talked about Love Field, and that was the beginning of Love Field. It was founded in 1917 as a training field for Air Corps pilots. Absolutely. But so, I mean, the, you know, I think Texas and the military are, are interconnected. You know, Texas is our home, and it's something that we're sharing with all of you, our experiences, the culture, the history, and the importance of it. And I think as we're on the anniversary of World War One, kicking into high gear, I think that we as Texans should take a little pride in, you know, our volunteerism and our ability to get behind it. All the accomplishments and the, and, you know, and just the number of great people who pass through Texas on the way to combat and then the role that these people play, not just in this war, but in the next coming world conflict. But also, we have to remember the darker side and that the, the treatment of the Texas Germans and just how their culture was affected and, and hurt in the long run by this. And those cultural roots expend, extend to a lot of us as Texans. And I think we feel the effects of that in, in the stories of our grandparents, our great-grandparents, some of the things we've shared. And uh, we see this repeated in other cultures and communities as we deal with global conflicts and how it affects us. But it's really cool to me that Texas is not just this weird frontier place that's sort of out there and kind of ancillarily attached to the United States. We are a central key part of the American military force. We're yeah. a central key part of the economic production force. Yeah, and it's this, this time period is also when Texas is making that transition from the frontier, the western frontier, into a integral part of the modern yeah. industrial world. Right. And we've only used the word oil one time so far like, this whole episode. Like two times, but yeah. Well, like two times. Now it's like four times. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the other thing was that even though they were persecuted and, and, and harassed, the German Texans still did their part. And they still yeah. raised money. They still they still volunteered. Uh, they still served. And they lost men. There is a statue in New Braunfels of a doughboy uh, on the courthouse yard. Uh, and it has a, a great meaning. It's like it was erected in the 20th anniversary of, of America entering the war. And... You know, it was for their boys who died as well, and it showed their loyalty to their their new country, their new home. Well, to our to our British friends listening, and our French friends, and our French friends, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, to our uh, y- and to everyone else, we say, uh, God bless Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. It's what really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.